Actually, I'm not reading the scripture, and the reason is it's long enough, it's got sections that need to be sort of dealt with separately, and that's what Phil's going to do. But i got to tell you, this is a text that preachers yearn to preach. And so I have to admit, just a little jealousy that you get this passage. But let's pray for uh, Phil as he prepares to speak. Father, we thank you for this great text. It's one of those texts which uh, one of my friends would call the short version of the gospel. And so we ask that you would help us to really grasp it Pray that you'd give Phil the grace and the power of your spirit to proclaim it. And Father, help us not to walk away and leave this message in the dust, but rather to see uh, more and more from it as you apply it to us in our lives through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Yeah, so this text... Uh, it's quite long, so up ahead, just I'm not going to cover every single thing in there. If you're like, oh, he missed my favorite thing, sorry. You can read it on your own and worship the Lord on your own. I'm going to try, try to hit the large points in all of six and most of seven today. Uh, I want to start with a little bit of review, so hit the next slide here. Uh, as always, I want to remind us what the book of Micah is about and it's about how God responds to unjust Israelite leadership. So every week going through, we've answered, how does he do that in this part of the book of Micah? Um, we ask, how does Micah exalt God and point specifically to the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God? What kind of sin and what kind of injustice is Micah calling out? And how does leadership, and then your leadership in particular, affect people? And finally, how is God going to solve Micah's problem the Israelites' problem, and our problems. Now, what does God want is going to be our subject today. And I just got to tell you, it's terrible in any relationship if you don't know what the other person wants of you. It's actually worse than that even when you don't know what you want from that relationship. Okay, so right now I'm going to talk about food for a second. In our marriage... One of the funniest things, at least to Jen and I, and maybe you'll find it funny, is every time we actually get a chance for a date, we end up sitting in the driveway talking to each other about what we want to eat. Because we don't go out, that, out to eat that much anymore, having four kids, and also we don't get very many dates just because of our life, and so we're like, hey, what do you want? I don't know. What do you want? In fact, it was so bad the last time that we actually, I ended up leaving the driveway, driving 75 north for about 15 minutes. We got distracted talking about something. I don't know, something about the kids. In the end, we're like, where are we going? I don't know. I don't know what you want to eat. I don't know where we ended up, some cheap restaurant or something. But it's kind of funny. We don't know what each other wants in that situation. Well, thankfully, God doesn't leave us wondering what he wants from us. And in Micah 6 and 7, we're going to cover most of 7 today, all the way up to verse 17. God is very clear about what he wants from his people, what he wants from Judah, from Micah, from the leaders, and from you, and from me. And let's turn in the text now. So I'm going to break it up. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6 right now. Listen for what God wants in this section, beginning in verse 1 again of chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, 
Plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Bear, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? I think the first thing we see in our text is that God wants us to remember. God wants you and me to remember. I just want to back up here and look at the first three verses for a second. And it's a courtroom scene. We have an arraignment and an indictment. I've actually never been arraigned or indicted, thank the Lord. However, maybe you have, though I doubt it. So I just thought it would be good for a second to think about that. An arraignment is the first part of a trial that might extend a long time. And a lot of times at the arraignment, what you have is a formal reading of the charges. If a person has been arrested and they haven't been read their charges, the arraignment and the indictment happen at the same time. I didn't know that. I actually had to look it up. <laughs> but now in Israel, it was a little different than in our time. There were no defense attorneys and no prosecutors. And actually, the only person that was kind of judged there was usually a Levite from the Levitical priesthood in Israel. And the defender and the accuser argued their own cases. Interesting, right? And so sometimes, like in Deuteronomy 22, just a reference for you later if you're taking notes, 13 to 21, there's physical evidence, but actually that wasn't usually what was needed in this type of trial. Whoever had the most persuasive argument bringing up the past and the present was the one who got their case decided for them. So the, Le the Levitical priest wouldn't use physical evidence as the primary reason for acquitting or um, successful case against the defender. And so here we are, God argues his case. Micah stands for Israel as the accused. And I got a question for you. We may not even answer today. Who's the judge? Who stands as judge here? Just put that in the back of your mind for a second and think about it. But the argument begins after verse three. And I got to tell you, it's not like, what does God use as his final charge, his final indictment against Israel? Is it the child sacrifice of the kings? No. Is it their substance abuse, getting drunk and then stealing from people? Is it murder? Is it oppression of the poor? No, it's their memory. It's their memory. God says to them, I have this problem you've forgotten. And so let's look in the text. And, and this week as I was studying through this, verses four and following, I had a hard time connecting these. I asked the Lord, hey, show me what the connection is here, and I want you to think about that same thing as we look through this. What is the connection between verses 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 here? 
What is it about memory that he wants his people to think about? What does he want them to remember? So let's start in verse 4 here. Remember the Exodus. Remember the Exodus. Amen. That's right, brother. Remember, it's a huge event in Israel. It's one of their primary things that God always points them back to. Redemption from slavery. Redemption from slavery. And as I was thinking about this, Exodus 3-2 stood out. The burning bush. And I had to be reminded, even though I've studied the Bible for a long time, who shows up at the burning bush? None other than the angel of the Lord. Now that's interesting. And what does it say about the plagues? Who did the plagues? The Lord himself. That's interesting. Moving on to the other one in verse 4, the leaders. Now some of these were better or worse. However, they provided guidance in the wilderness. These three people, actually Moses, Aaron, Miriam, are all related. And they all served as people that God had put in charge of them. It says actually that Miriam was a prophetess and Aaron and Moses were more familiar with. God himself, in the guidance through the wilderness, was before them in the pillar of fire at night and cloud by the day. So we have a theophany, God himself, but even more important, I think, for our text is this would call to mind the rock. Think about that for a second. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul directly connects guidance through the wilderness with who? Jesus Christ, the rock. He says the rock that followed them was Christ. And so we also have, in a sense, the angel of the Lord, this pre-incarnate Christ. Verse 5, and maybe you're following along like a good detective here. What does this have to do with that? Well, here we go. The bad boys. As Bob sometimes says, these are some bad boys of Balak and Balaam from Moab, right? They're enemies of Israel. And this one talks about protection through enemy territory. These are satanic enemies that try to curse and destroy God's people. And once again, guess who shows up? Three times. This one took me aback, actually. Three times the angel of the Lord shows up. And you know the story. The donkey talks and he's like, hey, come on. Like, I'm just trying to save you guys. Man, there's an angel and it's the angel of the Lord. Pre-incarnate Jesus is going to kill him. Interesting story. Nonetheless, the idea is that pre-incarnate Christ in Numbers 22 shows up. Here we go. Verse 5. Here's another one. This event... uh, we got to talk about it in a second. Shittim to Gilgal represents, number one, the conquest. Shittim's on the east side. Gilgal on the west. They're crossing through the Jordan. Two things about that. Really three, actually, are very important. Number one, the ark of the Lord went before them. So God himself goes through first in the land. And then they're in the land. And this is what just blew me away. They take the first Passover in the land. Joshua goes up to scout out where? Jericho. And who shows up? The angel of the Lord. And he tells him, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. So here, another point where a new leader comes and the angel of the Lord shows up. Pretty amazing. What do you think Michael wants them to remember? God shows up. The second person of the Trinity shows up to help you. Very interesting. And then the connection here between 6, 6 through 8 in this section. Here I see that God wants them to remember the law. Remember the law and who gave the law. And what happened when they gave the law. 
on the mountain that God shows up himself. But this is more important than the others in a sense because this law told them about themselves and it tells us about ourselves. It tells them about God and what he's like. In other words, he's saying, remember, and this passage is a quote from Deuteronomy 12 and another place. I just got to say, remember what I'm like. That's what God is saying. Remember what I'm like. Remember what I want from you. Justice, mercy, which actually is Hesed, loving kindness and humility. And I'm sorry to burst your bubble on this section if you always looked at this as good. It's actually very negative in my mind. He is saying to them, remember the law and actually remember you failed to keep it every single time. Every single time they failed. Every single time. The Pharisees couldn't keep it. We can't keep it. The rich young ruler couldn't keep it. Peter couldn't keep it. The law is about loving mercy and justice. And the higher you see the law, the more you realize you fail. Someone else is going to have to show up and keep it for you. Maybe that's the angel of the Lord. See the connections there? There's another interesting point about this last part of this section, the law here. It's a funny one in my mind, and I think they would have remembered it. The very first king they had, Saul, he's charged by God through Samuel to go attack the Amalekites. Some of you might remember this. He didn't actually do what God said. He went out and attacked them, and he was supposed to devote everything to the Lord, all the treasure, and he's supposed to kill the king. He doesn't do that. And Samuel shows up knowing what's going on. He's like, hey, Saul. And Saul's like, hey, Samuel, I've done what you said. Praise God. He hadn't. And Samuel's like, what is that bleeding of sheep I hear behind the hill? Like, no, you haven't. No, you haven't. And this passage that Micah quotes is exactly what Samuel tells to Saul. And you know what happens right after that? The kingdom is taken away from Saul and given to David. Another picture of a failed leader where God had to show up and help. Very interesting. So that is what's going on here in my mind, right? It's like those great detective shows where you see and you start to connect the dots. My favorite is Hercule Poirot. Great guy, love him. At the end, you're like, wow, I'm an idiot. <laughs> like, I, how did I not know exactly what's going on here? But he connects them. He connects all the facts about the case. And that's what God is doing for us. And that's what he wanted to do for Micah, was connect all these things. What is he saying through this uh, encouragement to them to remember? Number one, remember that I'll show up and help you. I always show up to help you. The angel of the Lord shows up to help you. Remember that when you fail, I am there. My leader, not unjust ones, but my good leader will always show up to help you. You failed, but it's not all lost. God is going to show up. That person in Micah 5.2, divine and human, the angel of the Lord made flesh, and Jesus Christ will show up to help his people. And that's what God wants us to remember from this text. That the coming king always shows up to deliver his people from disaster and failure. And we are in the same spot. First of all, none of us can keep the law. Apart from Christ, none of us can keep the law. We have failed. Number two, we know what the coming king is like. Remember last week? This is a king with different strategies, man, a different kind of person. We know that king intimately, and we can look back to the cross, can't we? 
And another thing that we, we have in common, similar to Micah's day, is that we live in the midst of dark days. And we too, get this, are waiting for a coming king, aren't we? Jesus to return. So we're in a very similar spot. We know more about the king. We know his name. We know more about what he's like. We have the cross. But we too are called to remember what God has done. And that's the thing, right, is remembering past works of God in our life and on the cross actually is intended always, and I think I've said this before, whenever we remember, it's always intended for us to what? Believe him for his promises in the future, in your life. So that's where God is going in this chapter, and that's where he goes with us. Romans 8, 31 and 32 is the perfect kind of summation of all this. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's almost a direct quote from Joshua chapter 5. You go look that up. It's very interesting that he's quoting there. And then he goes on to say in chapter 8 of Romans 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so for us, we have to remember what God has done in our lives. Remember what he is doing in our lives now. Culturally, we've kind of undermined history. We like to rewrite it. We like to talk about our perspective of it. There's even a basketball player who's now playing for Dallas. Who <laughs> has a bad history of kind of erasing the past, specifically the Holocaust. We as a culture don't like the past. And yet, God's charge here is to remember it. Remember what he's done in your life. And each one of us undermines history when we forget what God has done in our lives. I know in my own life, a lot of my sin comes from forgetfulness. I just don't purposely recall to mind what God has done, how he saved me, and my testimony, and those around me at CBC's testimonies. You know, I think one cool thing recently has been I got to look back at my journal, which I've had for about 18 years now, before I knew my wife, actually, <laughs> and really when I wanted to follow the Lord seriously. And I've got, I got to look back at that this week and see how God has answered prayers. And how he's grown me. Do you have something like that in your life? If not, I would challenge you to do that this week. Remember, and I remember a couple, uh, maybe a month ago, um, Bob was up here and he said, hey, let's write some songs. Maybe you want to do that. Maybe there's a song, maybe even just for you, that you can sing to the Lord about what he's done in your life. Maybe there's something you can write to a friend that's really struggling about your own life and how God has delivered you or whatever comes to your mind, so you can remember the greatness of God. But whatever it is, share it, journal about it, sing it, write it, send it, but remember what God has done so that you can live tomorrow in faith. So God wants us to remember his past works. Let's read the next section of our text, 6-9, starting in 6-9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you, 
You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. You shall, you, for you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Go ahead and hit the next slide here. God wants us to fear him. And that's the second thing I see in this text. God wanted the city of Jerusalem, because this is an address that says city. So it's talking to the city specifically. He wanted them to fear him. A couple of reasons there. Number one, all the leaders in Jerusalem had forgotten what God wanted them to remember. And what they wanted forgotten, God remembered. They didn't want to have to pay for their sins. All these wicked leaders up to this point had failed. And I think God targets the city for two specific reasons other than that. Number one, and practically, it's going to be the only thing left when Sennacherib comes. It's going to be the only city left in all of Israel and Judah. North and southern kingdoms destroyed. What's left? Jerusalem. And so he says, look, when it comes to that, listen to me, Jerusalem. And then secondly, it represents the leaders. That's kind of what I referenced earlier, but it represents the leaders. He's saying, listen, be afraid of me. It says, fear me. And why should we fear God? Why should Micah's people and Micah himself fear God? 9 through 12, he says, fear me because I cannot acquit the guilty. God says, it's impossible for me to acquit guilty people. And then secondly, he says, fear me in verses 13 through 16. Why? Because I will punish the wicked. So we have these two sides of a coin of fear. Can't acquit guilty sinners, punishes wickedness. And then he kind of caps it off in verse 16. He says, look, instead of following my law, you know whose law you followed? Omri and Ahab, child sacrificers. Wicked men who are famous for all the wrong reasons. I referenced this in my first message. These are the pinnacle of wickedness in the kingdom of Israel. Instead of me and my easy yoke, as Jesus says, you have put on yourselves the yoke of these wicked people. In Ahab's day, actually, there was a commander who sacrificed two of his children to rebuild Jericho. Two of them, not just one. And so he said, you feared these men rather than me. I have a, something I think will help us here, thinking through how much God hates sin. Is there anything you really hate? Probably. I'm not talking about people. We're going to stay away from that. Maybe something that really annoys you. Um, maybe it's really ugly and you just can't look at it, like an item or something. Maybe you're afraid of it because it might kill you. Or maybe you've had a really bad experience, like a roller coaster. So for me, this is sharks. I really hate sharks. Like, I really, really, really hate them. Um, like, when I go to the beach, I've made up... All, my wife found this out yesterday. I was practicing for the first time. I make kind of excuses to not get in the water. <laughs> So I'm like, oh, I got to, like, I'm like, no, I'm good here. I'm going to get a tan. Like, I'm going to walk. So I go up to the water. I walk in the shallow parts. And I'm like, you know, the bravest thing I think I've ever done is a few years ago, my son, Hezekiah, wanted me to go bodyboarding out there in the wakes in North Carolina. I'm like, oh, no, but okay for you. So I did it a couple times and then ran out of the water. I'm like, no way, kid. I'm like, every time I read about somebody getting attacked from, by a shark, I'm like, you're stupid. 
Like, the water or the ocean, you can't see it, and a shark is going to come and bite you. Like, watch out. <laughs> I was watching a really cool movie, actually, um, about Louis Zamperini called Unbroken. And he survived in the ocean for 47 days. And he and two of his um, fellow World War II pilots. And I almost didn't make it through because, like, two-thirds of the way of them being in the ocean, these Japanese Zeros came by and they buzzed the rafts and they shot at them. So they had to get out into shark-infested waters and back in, and then they came around again and he jumps into the shark-infested waters. If that's not bad enough, in the movie at least, I don't know what happened in real life, a shark jumps up onto their raft and this dude just like starts hitting him on the, I'm like, that is me. If, if a shark is there, I'm going to shoot it a hundred times after it's dead because I hate them. I absolutely hate them. And here's the point in that. Whatever it is you hate with that visceral hate, it's infinitesimally small compared to how much God hates sin. It, it can't even hold a candle to how much he hates sin. And he's saying to us and to them, he says, fear me because I hate this injustice you have done. I hate how you oppress the poor. I hate that you treat people as a way to get rich. You're sinners and I punish sinners. You should be afraid of me. I'm going to kill many of you. Fear me. I hate sin. And I think for us, you and me and all of us, we must admit the depth of our sin to really fear the Lord. To really have in us that same kind of fear that God has and the hate he has for sin, we really have to know the depth of our sin. How much does God hate sin? Hell. Infinite punishment. That's how much he hates sin. How much does God hate sin? The cross. The cross. The sinless God-man had to die the worst death imaginable, naked, without friends, while all the people he created cursed him. He had to do this in order to forgive sin. That's how serious sin is in our lives. That's how much God hates sin. And I think unless we can see our sins for what they are, unless I can, get on God's side, confess and admit they're the same, then I won't really understand God's grace. Then I, re- I won't really understand his justice or his mercy. I won't really understand, therefore, do you follow? God himself. I will have a clouded view of who the Lord Jesus Christ is if I don't understand the depth of my own sin. And I think a sneaky way in our own lives that this manifests is something that I heard once in Colorado at my brother's church that I love. It's called sin management. Sin management is a sneaky way of making sin small in your life and in my life. Sin management looks like this. I only watch this really inappropriate rom-com, romantic comedy, because my husband doesn't give me what I need And it's only just a small thing. It's a show. It's okay. Sin management looks like this. I'll just curse when I'm at work or when no one's around, you know, because it's okay. It's just a word. It's just something that, you know, God doesn't really care about. In fact, I I need to be liked at work. So it has a good justifying end right there. I need to be liked. Sin management looks like this. 
I'm a good person compared to Matthew, not our Matthew or any Matthew here. <laughs> because I read the Bible and I go to church every Sunday. He, he drinks and he smokes weed every day. It's okay if I drink a little. If I drink a little too much, God will forgive me. He won't hold it against me. That's sin management. We don't want to be people like that. We want to murder sin. That's what the Bible says. Put to death the flesh that is in you. And I think that's what God is saying to us. God wants Micah's people, and he wants us to remember him and to fear him. Because we know that God has acted on our behalf in the past, and because we know that he punishes sin, how can this dilemma be solved? <laughs> and what is God's solution to all of this? Well, that's where he's headed. Buttressed by these two things, supported like a house of the fear of God and remembering what he's done in the past and looking forward to the future, we come to Micah chapter 7, verse 1. You'll read with me there now. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that makes that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them like a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her now shall we trample down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. I can't do justice to all of this today, but I think it's a unit. So next week, we're going to hit the end of Micah and a little bit review here. 
But go ahead and hit the next slide here. God wants us to wait. God wanted Judah to wait on him. For fruit, number one, for fruit. Verses one through six is for fruit. You know, you look at Micah, there's not a lot of fruit in his day. He said, no one's really listening. No one's really listening to his message. And he, I think he's even speaking for himself. I don't see real good fruit in my life either. You can't even trust your closest friend. Imagine that. Your husband, your wife, your best friend, you can't trust them. They're out to get you. It's kind of what we were talking about today, right, in the first service. There's essentially no fruit of obedience or hearing of God's word. And this is really interesting here. This is a theme throughout Scripture. Like Micah's a little Isaiah. Isaiah picks it up. Jeremiah picks it up. And you know what else does? All four Gospels. All four Gospels pick up on this very thing, this fruit, especially from the fig tree. And what happened in Jesus' day, he went to get fruit from a fig tree, and there was none. There was none. He is just like Micah. And Micah and Christ here in chapter 7 come real close together. In fact, I would say he's even a type of Christ in this. He's speaking like that. The message here is clearly identification between this prophet's experience and Jesus Christ's experience together. And then if we look at the solution to the problem, it gets even more clear here. Look at verse 9. And really, 7 through 10 in verse 9 here, I was thinking maybe someone would even get up today, but they didn't, so I got to save it and give it to you here when we were talking about Isaiah 53. This is Isaiah 53. Verse 9. I just want to rehash for a second. Micah enters a guilty plea on behalf of everyone. She said, yep, just like Isaiah, just like Jesus said, just like Romans says, everyone is guilty. How are we going to solve this problem? You punish sin. You won't acquit the guilty. How am I going to be rescued? Verse 9, God will plead his cause. God will plead his, his cause. Look at that. It says, Micah sinned. Verse 9, who's going to execute judgment? Micah doesn't pay for his sin. The people don't pay for their sin. Who does? God. You execute justice for me. That's the cross in Micah. Absolutely clear right there. It's a match to Isaiah 53. It's a match to this thing we were talking about this morning, substitutionary atonement, penal substitute. In other words, God himself, the person of Jesus Christ, paid the penalty that was due us for our sin. And it's right here in Micah chapter 7, verse 9. Let me read to you Paul's analysis of this. And just think about Micah 7 here, verse 9. It says in Romans 3, 24 through 26, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is the Christian life right there. And moving on here in this, and we'll come back to that in a second, but Micah said, hey, wait for the kingdom. And we're in that place. We're waiting for the kingdom. We're waiting for this one who paid for our sins to come back and eliminate all sin on the face of the earth in our lives. No one will be afraid of their mother, their brother, their sister. No one will be afraid of unjust leaders in that day. And if you look at, there are at least seven things in 11 through 17. I'll, I'll go through them quickly here. Number one, a new Jerusalem. Sound like anywhere in the Bible? 
extended influence is coming. Their land is going to be greater. The enemy worshipers in verse 12 come from everywhere, Assyria and Egypt. A good shepherd is coming, verse 14. In verse 15, a greater exodus is coming. In verse 16, a greater judgment on the nations is coming. And in verse 17, the serpent will be judged. Satan. That, I mean, he's, he's taking us to Revelation, right? Revelation's picking up here, right? I, I just think for all of us here, this is very relevant. Very relevant because all of God's promises in this regard are still to come. We have to remember the cross, but we look forward to a day when he will be back. This king is coming again, and he will make all things right. And, and therefore, the Christian life now is a waiting game, isn't it? We know the end of it. We know we win, but it's still a waiting game. We still have to wait on the Lord. Let me just give you some interesting figures here. 6,300,000 hours. That's how long it was between Micah's prophecy and the holding of a baby boy by Anna and Simeon and his mom named Jesus. 16.8 million hours. That's how long Abraham's descendants waited to hold Jesus Christ. And 17 and a half million hours is how long we have been waiting for Jesus to return. But he's coming. And one day that number will have a finite end. He will return. And so we wait. We wait. That's what God wants from us, to wait on that God who is a God who takes care of our sins himself and will return one day we wait on God. And here's, here's the key here. Here's where the Old Testament is just beautiful. Faith. We wait. Why? Because we believe. We wait because we believe. The result of faith is waiting. We believe he can fix the problems himself, and he has demonstrated that in the past. We believe he knows best. His strategies are better than ours, so we wait. We trust his different but perfect character. Think about it this way. If I'm waiting on a good meal at home like biryani, I don't know what y'all eat. I hate American casseroles. Sorry, mom, I love you. Hate them. I wait for like some Middle Eastern food, some biryani, something that is delicious. Love you, mom. Um, you know, if I'm waiting for that, am I going to go to McDonald's and get a burger? Absolutely not. Number one, it's not even really like meat probably, but <laughs> it's not very good, right? But here's the thing, if I don't wait, I don't really believe it's coming. Like if my wife has fallen asleep on the couch because she has four kids and I come home at 5.30 or whatever and she's not awake, I know I'm not getting biryani that night. So I'm gonna go to McDonald's, right? Here's the thing, since you know God is cooking up something amazing, you're not gonna go to the trash and get a two-day-old two McDonald's burger. It actually still smells and feels good because it's not real. <laughs> right? You're not, you're not going to go there, right? Because you're waiting, because you believe that God has something good for you, right? You believe it, and so you wait. And that's what God calls each of us to do, to wait on him. What does waiting do? My wife told me to slow down here if you're taking notes. So waiting, number one, renews your strength. Isaiah 40, 31, waiting renews your strength. In a weird, God-ordained way that I'm terrible at, waiting renews my strength, and it renews yours. Because you're not the one acting, God does. Number two, waiting purifies us. 
It makes you do that thing called delayed gratification that Americans are terrible at. <laughs> we wait and it purifies us. That one is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. They, as they were waiting for Jesus, they abandoned their idols to wait for him from heaven. Number three, waiting keeps our hearts and minds focused. As we wait, we have to think about the thing or the person we're waiting for, Jesus the Son of God. That's Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Waiting keeps us focused on what God is going to do in the future. And number four, waiting reveals our true desires. As we wait, what we really want comes to the surface. Like that food illustration, man, I'm getting hungry. What am I going to do as I wait for a meal? And that one is Luke chapter 12, 35 to 39. There's a lot of parables about waiting. That's one of them. It reveals our true desires. Are we going to fall asleep? Or are we going to wait? For us now, I think that's the big challenge is to, as some have said, hurry up and wait. Wait. We wait for him. We wait for him to provide money or a car or a place to live or food or not. We wait for him to provide friends for comfort or not. We wait for him to provide kids and to help our kids and to help us as parents help our kids because we're not very good at it or not. We wait on him to remove depression and despondency, to crush the wicked, corrupt rulers, to rescue the orphan or not. We wait on him to restore relationships and marriages, to bring you a wife or a husband. We wait on him to heal our hearts and our bodies to judge and to save, to remove wickedness from our leaders here in the country, or not, actually. But we wait because we know, just as Micah promised, we wait because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that one day all of God's promises will come true and all of them are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Everything that is promised in the Bible will come true when he returns. There'll be no more sin and no more wickedness. You'll have no lack. You won't die. You won't have tears. All the injustice that's ever been done to you and other people will be taken care of. It was taken care of on the cross for all who believe, but it will be taken care of for everyone in the end. So we wait, and we wait by faith. We trust in him. Go ahead and hit the last slide. You know, God responded to unjust Israelite leaders by telling them what he wanted. And he tells us, he doesn't, there's no doubt about what God wants. He wants us to remember him, to fear him, and to wait on him. So this week, play the waiting game. Fear him all the while, knowing that he hates sin, but remember what he's done in your own life. Sing it, journal it, write it, do something to bring to mind that remembrance that by faith you can carry on and wait for him because he's coming back. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you'd help me wait to put to death the sin that so easily entangles my own heart and to wait on your deliverance, to remember what you've done in the past so that I might have the strength and courage and fortitude for tomorrow and the day after and the next day. And I pray that same thing for everyone here. Encourage your body, strengthen them, deliver them, and help them to wait on you and to testify of your goodness.
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.